Hello and welcome to Tri-School Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tri-School The Buddhist Review. Today I'm talking with one of the most tenacious people I've met in the Buddhist world. Her name is Tony Bernhard. Way before the COVID-19 pandemic began, Tony was thinking and writing about what it means to be sick, the often isolating experiences of chronic illness, as well as the unfair expectations society can place on us. Tony is the author of the award-winning How to Be Sick, a Buddhist-inspired guide for the chronically ill and their caregivers, which is now available as a short pocket guide. She's also written two other books on living well with chronic illness. During our conversation, I asked Tony about what she would say to people who are suffering from COVID's long-haul symptoms. We also spoke about her Buddhist practice and how her journey to self-acceptance and authorship began. Tony Bernhardt, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. How are you feeling today? I'm doing okay. Every day is a challenge in that I got a virus 20 years ago Mm -hmm. in May, from which I never recovered. And it's eerily similar in some ways to what's happening with people who are being called long haulers when they get COVID. And I say in some ways, because sometimes what happens with a long hauler is the virus attacks other organs in their bodies. But Mm -hmm. for me, it's very similar in that I have very little energy to expend each day. One infectious disease doctor described it as how uh, that when I sleep, my battery, it only recharges 30%. And so that's what I've got for the day. Well, thank you for giving us your energy today. I appreciate it. We're here to talk about your book, which I think you're best known for, How to Be Sick, A Buddhist-Inspired Guide for the Chronically Ill and Their Caregivers. And one thing that I found interesting is that you write, how to be sick, meaning how to live a life of purpose and joy despite my physical and energetic limitations. Can you say something about that? Well, the title, How to Be Sick, is a little strange. Yeah, I was thinking so. (laughs) Yeah, I've had mixed reactions. Uh, One person in Europe said, you have got to retitle that book because in Europe, how to be sick means that you're throwing up. Right. But on the other hand, I've had a lot of people say, I bought that book because of the title. Mm -hmm. The title came about because I one day thought, you know, I had to stop my job as a teacher and it was a pretty dark period for me. And I'd already been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years. You were teaching law, right? I was teaching law at UC Davis uh, School of Law, where I'd also been a dean of students for six years. That's where you get the gray hair. I got mine very early. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, had to stop teaching because I didn't recover from this viral infection. And it was a pretty dark period for maybe four years. And one day I pulled my laptop over, which I kept on a chair next to the bed. And I opened a Word document and wrote how to be sick. And what I was thinking was that maybe I could use the Buddha's teachings, which I had immersed myself in for 10 years, but had put aside so focused on being sick. Maybe I could use his teachings to help me live a full and fulfilling life. And I, I didn't do much with it then, but I started tapping away and I shared it with a few people, Sylvia Borston being one. And they said, there's a book here. Right. And so the reason it has that rather odd title is that it could never have had another title for me because that's how I started. It was first published in 2010. And then there was a second edition in 2018. And then last year, you added to that a pocket edition. Yeah. My publisher, Wisdom, asked me if I would write a pocket guide. And they sent me a couple samples from people like Thich Nhat Hanh so I could see what one looked like. And I thought, well, this would be really nice because people could carry it around and purse, backpack, whatever. 
because it's only four by six, I would say. And so, yes, that I wrote and it was published about six months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I imagine in the pandemic year, this book and the pocket edition have taken on renewed relevance. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Because a lot of my focus is on what to do when you're so limited in what you can do. And of course, for me, it means being at home most of the time. So you have to face a lot of uncertainty and sometimes loneliness and fear about the future. So, so much of what I wrote about, little did I know that it would resonate with people this past year. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine, especially the long haulers that you mentioned, who are struggling still with fatigue and other ailments due to COVID-19. Yes, but the long haulers, there's an eerie similarity, as I mentioned. But people who are in good health have turned to my books because there's so much in them about solitude and learning to live on your own when you're stuck at home and learning to accept life's uncertainty and unpredictability. When this happened a year ago, we all thought, okay, a month of this, we can do that. And then suddenly it became, well, we don't know. Some people were saying this could be five years. And other people were saying, oh, next month, or we're saying, I don't care, I'm just going to go out anyway. So people have had to come to terms with the fact that we can't predict the future. I mean, there are some things we can, but on the whole, it's right in the first noble truth, what I call the Buddha's list, where he gives this list of unpleasant experiences that we all can expect to face in life. And at the end of the list, I think of it as the catch-all, which is not getting what you want or getting what you don't want, which really kind of covers everything because illness is on the list and aging is on the list. And certainly we got what we didn't want this last year. You mentioned something about how the illness began. And in reading the book, I was surprised at how long you actually lasted in your teaching post by disguising Mm -hmm. your illness. So acceptance didn't come immediately. It was a process. So how is it that you came to this acceptance? In other words, began to move with your body instead of against it? You know, it took time. When I first got sick, I did take a semester off of teaching with the dean's blessing. But then I forced myself to go back part-time for a couple of years. And looking back on it, it was probably a mistake in that I, I'm not sure, but it may have contributed to the state of my illness today. But I went back because I simply couldn't believe that I wasn't getting better. And the people around me, my colleagues, you get better. You get a viral infection and then you get better. And so everyone expected me to recover and no one expected it more from me than myself. And I was not nice to myself about it. I would go to bed and order myself to wake up feeling well. And I began to feel as if it was some defect in my character that I couldn't get over this virus. And I was helped a lot by Sylvia Borston, who was once a teacher and now a friend, but always a teacher. Did your Buddhist practice come first or did the illness come first? I already had a 10-year Buddhist practice. My, I guess you would call it spiritual home, was Spirit Rock, which is about an hour and a half from here. And every year I would go on one or two 10-day retreats. And I had a very disciplined meditation practice twice a day for 45 minutes, which I could not sustain when I got sick. And it was one of the reasons that I was so unkind to myself. I was like a drill sergeant. Do this, do that, 
all the things that I did before I got sick and simply couldn't do. And you asked how I came to acceptance. And I I think I just wore myself down, ordering myself around and having <laughs> and having it not make any difference. And one day I was on the phone with Sylvia and she said to me, you know, your body is sick. Your mind need not be sick. And it was like a light bulb coming on for me. And that's when I let the Buddhist teachings back into my life. And of course, I can't go on retreats. It's hard for me to leave the house for more than about two hours at a time. If you think about how you feel when you have the flu, you can't be very far from the bed. You can get up for a bit and then your body says, that's it. And so that's what my life is like. So I can't go on retreats. I have not resumed the twice a day, 45 minute meditation practice, but I do meditate but I do it differently now. But I had to give myself permission to do things differently. Well, how does that look now, the, your practice? My practice, I meditate lying down. And usually, I'm lucky that I don't fall asleep lying down. Some people do. And 25 minutes to a half hour a day, most of my Buddhist practice is, as the saying goes, off the cushion. Mm -hmm. I practice mindfulness all day long. It's like my refuge. I think Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it that way, as I have several practices in the book to help people bring themselves to the present moment. Because when you're in the moment, you can't be lost in ruminations about the past, all the things you could do that you can't do now, as an example. And you can't be worrying about the future. I'm a great worrier. Give me something to worry about, I'll worry. But right. when I bring myself to the moment, even if it's not a pleasant moment, you know, one thing I sometimes say is that the present moment is not always a pleasant moment. We know that from the Buddha's first noble truth. In my chapter on suffering, on really on the first and second noble truths, I title it, The Buddha Tells It Like It Is. And that was so eye-opening for me to realize that illness and pain are part of the human condition. That's nothing to blame yourself for. It comes with the territory. It comes with life. And I, I want to enjoy life as much as I can. That brings up a few questions. The sure. first, and I'll go back to a few others. The first is the self-blame that people feel when they get sick. And it's not just self-blame. They sense the implicit blame of others around them. Like, what did you do? How did you get it? Right. How do you deal with that blame? Because the culture really does seem to place blame on people who become ill. Oh, it does. This culture does a terrible job of preparing us for... I keep going back to this, what I call the Buddha's list in the first noble truth. It's right there. Aging, illness, pain, losing what you cherish. It's right there and it happens with everybody. And what happened with me was that at first I did feel blamed by others and I resented that. And so there was so much anger toward others. I already said there was anger toward myself, but there was anger toward others until one day I realized that all of them wished me well. They were just like me, uneducated, like I had been uneducated about the truth of illness and pain. I mean, people write to me who are in their 20s and have some kinds of pain conditions and have to face people saying, well, you're too young to be in pain. And so this is, again, the culture doing a poor job of preparing people either to have that experience themselves or to suddenly be a caregiver, be a helper 
towards someone who does. And so there was a moment when I forgave everybody who didn't understand. And the reason I was able to do that was that I knew that they all wished me well. They just weren't skilled at dealing with pain and illness. You know, you mentioned young people and my colleague, Karen Jensen, who works with me on this podcast, mentioned that friends of hers who have had COVID, there are those who are long haulers. They continue to have symptoms and their feelings. I'm too young to be sick. I'm too young not to recover. Right. What would you say to them? Well, what I would say to them is, first of all, try to find a doctor who is sympathetic toward what you're going through. Even if they aren't sure how to help, they'll keep an eye out. They'll be there for you. So try to do that. And then the other thing is to just go day to day and know that you don't have the power to control the future, the future course of what's going on with you. Most long haulers seem to get better. Sometimes it's two months, sometimes it's six months. We can't go further than about a year, but So know that you might get better and also work on, and this is really hard and I know it is for people, work on accepting that some of the difficulties you're facing now may be something that will stay with you that you'll have to accommodate the rest of your life. I also think COVID is so new that hopefully down the line, there'll be some treatments for people who are long haulers, who will help people maybe like me. I've been a long hauler for 20 years, and Mm -hmm. there really is nothing to help me except some symptom relief. And I just want to say to anyone who's listening who's a long hauler, it's not your fault. And so please be kind to yourself. This is what we call self-compassion, a word that everybody throws around today. But it simply means being kind to yourself. It's not your fault. And so speak to yourself kindly. I recommend that people find words that are specific to what they're sad or suffering about. Like, it's so hard not to be able to go to a restaurant with my friends if you're in a place that's opened up and allowing that. My county is allowing it. I still can't do it. And when I feel that sadness, instead of getting angry at myself now, I speak words of kindness. And when you do that, you're showing yourself that you care about your suffering. And that in itself will help alleviate it. Tricycle Talks is brought to you by Tricycle, the Buddhist Review, a print and digital magazine dedicated to making Buddhist teachings and practices broadly available. New subscribers can receive a four-week free trial by visiting tricycle.org slash subscribe. A free trial includes four new digital magazine issues a year, plus our entire 30-year archive, access to daily web-exclusive content, more than 500 video Dharma talks, and special discounts on Tricycle online courses. Go to tricycle.org slash subscribe to sign up for a free trial today. Please note that the free trial applies to yearly digital subscriptions option only. Now, Let's return to James Shaheen in conversation with Tony Bernhard, author of the book, How to Be Sick. Okay, Tony, so we talked a lot about chronic illness, and I don't have a chronic illness, but I still found it useful because I've discovered that after, say, 45, 50, when something breaks, it doesn't fully repair So my knee, for instance, and the chronic pain in my knee, everything is like that. It never gets back to where it was, say, when you were 20. Yeah. It is just the fundamental first noble truth of suffering. 
it is a sort of process also to get used to the fact that your body will not fully repair. Mm -hmm. And I find it very useful in that way. Yeah. Again, you know, you turn on the television and the ads will say, if, if you eat your yogurt, you'll never get sick and, you know, exercise and you won't have any problems. Well, it turns out a lot of joggers have knee problems. Well, I now. was one of them. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. I learned. Yeah. So it was eye-opening to learn to really have the truth of suffering driven home to me. And, you know, people say, I'm sure you've heard this too. Well, Buddhism is pessimistic. You look at that first noble truth. Who wants to read about pain and grief? And the... But for me, when I went back to it after several years of illness, it made me realize I wasn't alone. It wasn't me. There wasn't mm -hmm. something wrong with me. This is life. This is the human condition. And the question is, what do we do with what we got? Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, the culture does turn health into a great virtue. So there's a kind of moralization of health. If you're not healthy, you've done something. But this notion is held out that you can always and forever be healthy. Right. Right. And I was going to say anybody over a certain age knows that's not true, but anybody at any age can learn that it's not true. I've had teenagers write to me. One woman has rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. It really shouldn't be called arthritis. It's an autoimmune disease of the joints, and she's in terrible pain. And she has trouble getting people to accept that you can be that young and be in pain, but you can. Well, I certainly learned that in the 80s when a lot of friends had AIDS. I mean, people hadn't expected young people to become ill like that. Yeah. And one memory I have that's very distinct is that this young woman was looking at this friend and this friend of mine was clearly ill. Mm. And she looked at him with self-pity. And my response was, I appreciated her concern. But what she was missing is that it will happen to her too, right. you know, eventually. So when people feel pity, they should just remember that this happens to all of us. Yeah. I remember being young and I was probably eight years old, 10 years old. And my mother was sitting on the bed and I noticed for the first time that her tummy, she was a very fashionable person and her tummy had this kind of bump in it <laughs> and her upper arms are a little flabby. And I thought, well, too bad that's happening to her. It never occurred to, <laughs> to me it would happen to her, me. Right, right. Yeah, and this is why, to me, Buddhism is not pessimistic because all the Buddha is doing is pointing out the human condition mm -hmm. and then sets out a path for living the best life you can for yourself and others around you given that human condition. So to me, that's not pessimistic. I'd rather know the truth. Do you think that truth and having received the teachings before this happened made all the difference in your adjustment, despite the difficulty of that adjustment? Yes. Yes. Because when I went back to my Buddhist books and to the, the raw data, like in the canon, these are words that I had read because when I first became a Buddhist, uh, which was 10 years before I got sick, I went to the library on the UC Davis campus. And that was before everything was digitalized. And I asked, well, where are the Buddhist books? I said, in the basement. And I went down to the basement and there were thousands of Buddhist books. And I took them out, focusing Zen, Tibetan, and Theravadan. And I did a huge amount of reading. And it's amazing to me, now that I think back on it, that I didn't carry that with me when I first got sick. I understand why I didn't. It was such an overwhelming experience for myself, my husband, my kids. We were all, what's happening? What's happening? Even though they were all supportive. Mm -hmm. So, But having had that background, when I went back 
to my Buddhist books, you know, I had my favorites and they were in all traditions, there suddenly it all made sense. Not that I don't have to work on it every day, on the suggestions, the practices, I do, but it all made sense. He was saying, these are unpleasant experiences. We make things worse. This is moving to the second noble truth. We make things worse when we resist their presence, when we want things to be otherwise, things that we have no power over. That's tanha, that's desire. That's that feeling, if only I could regain my health, I'd be happy the rest of my life. Well, is that true? Right. <laughs> I mean, probably not. <laughs> so, you know, I'll go out on a limb here. I know nobody wants to be sick, but it's not really up to us. Eventually we are, unless something sudden happens to us. That's eventually what happens. But some years ago, I got something called vestibular neuronitis. It was an inflammation of the inner ear, mm. uh, uh, the vestibular nerve. Yeah. And I had no balance and I <gasps> couldn't do anything. Oh. And there was a rehab involved, but it would take a few weeks before I could really even walk. Right. And so I was confined to my bed. But I figured out that if I closed one eye and held a book above my head, I could read. And so I began to read. And, you know, the mm. prognosis was, I should add, the prognosis was that I would recover. Yes. So I didn't, I didn't have the fear, oh, I'm stuck this way. Although moments at night, I did feel that way. But a whole world opened up to me. There was no pressure to get up. There was no pressure to go out. Mm. There was no sense that I must do, I must accomplish. And I all of a sudden was plucked out of the culture and given the sort of open field to kind of consider and reflect on my life. I don't wish this on anyone. It's a really pretty miserable state. On the other hand, within it, there was a certain kind of freedom. Do you ever find that? You know, it's a little different for me because no one is telling me I'm going to get better. Mm -hmm. And it's been 20 years and I doubt that I will. I hope I do. I'm always bringing new treatments to my doctor. And his rule is, as long as I'm convinced it won't make you worse, you can try it. Right. But I think that it was a little harder for me to find the freedom that you're talking about, because I don't have an end to this illness in sight. Even people who are currently in a stay-at-home order because of the pandemic have an end in sight. But things are opening up here, restaurants, 25% capacity. My husband and I think it's a little too fast, but mm -hmm. that's what's happening. And so all this year, there's been an end in sight. Whereas for me, there's no end in sight until my life is over. I just don't see that. And so I've had to reach really deep. Pema Chodron has this wonderful title of one of her books, start where you are. Mm -hmm. And so what I have to do every morning is start where I am. I have a lot of pain on some days. Other days, I feel as if even if I slept eight hours, I didn't sleep at all. And I've learned, okay, that's my starting point. What can I do today? And I paint. I have a lounge chair and I paint in watercolor where I can sort of go back in the chair and hold the piece of paper that I've taped to a board almost right up to me so that I'm reclining. On most days, I try to do that for a couple hours in the morning. I've had to find freedom. And I, I know what you're talking about, that freedom of no obligation it's just a bit harder when you don't see in the future that you'll ever have the freedom to do what you want. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's why I pointed out that I knew I would get better and that makes all the difference. It, it turned out to be a bit of a break, as miserable as it was. Yeah. But you, know, you talk about acceptance and you embody this acceptance and you talk about finding freedom, which you catch glimpses of. I mean, I'm impressed that you paint. I was especially impressed when I read this. I put this book together slowly and with great difficulty. 
I wrote it lying on my bed, laptop on my stomach, notes strewn about on the blanket, printer within arm's reach. That's tenacity. I mean, it's not uh, working yeah. against anything uh, so much as within this kind of condition and acceptance, you are able to exert a kind of energy and will to, to get something done. Yeah, but it took me about four years to get to that point, James. I mean, it was not easy mm-hmm. because when I, as I often call it, traded the classroom for the bedroom, another thing that happened was this uh, painful identity crisis. I'd been a law professor. Yeah, the dean stuff was in there too, but my identity was law professor. My children were grown and gone. I still am mother. Uh, But those day-to-day responsibilities weren't there. But my life was the law school. And I loved my job. I loved teaching. And when I was stuck at home, I would say to myself, if I'm not a law professor, who am I? And again, the Buddha's teachings on anatta, whether you translate that as no self or no fixed self or not self, those teachings that help me see that all of our identities are fluid, no matter what anybody's doing right now, you might not be doing it in 10 years. So that was a tremendous help to me. And that was one of the things that brought me out of a dark place was this realization that within my limitations, I could do anything. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Within my limitations, I mean, I obviously can't do anything. I can't paint like Monet. Well, you wrote a book. But I wrote a book. Several books, yeah. Several books. And there were times when I thought, I just can't do this. And those were times when I would train myself to be compassionate about that to myself, to say, okay, this is a day when you're feeling too sick to write. Put everything down. Just put on something distracting. I'm not opposed to distraction when needed. But I also had this discipline of thinking that this was a way that I might be able to help other people. Because to me, there's no higher calling in life than helping other people. Mm -hmm. I think I would have said that even before I got sick. It was just a different calling. Right. But that's why I wrote, and it's why I still write, because I get feedback from people that it's helpful. And so this is something I can do with this unexpected turn my life took. I'd like to ask another question before I ask for practical advice, if you don't mind. Sure. You wrote, recognizing that a lack of control over much of what happens to you is an inescapable reality of the human condition. And I think everybody would say, oh, yes, that's true. Just like impermanence is true. But did this illness force you to embody that or internalize that or really understand that in a way you might not otherwise have understood it? I think it did, absolutely. And it prepared me for this pandemic. I'm already home much of the time, but that doesn't mean that I didn't have some choices. I had a friend who would come over once a week. She hasn't been in my house. I haven't seen her for a year. We talk on the phone once a week. Mm -hmm. So it may seem as if people who were chronically ill and already at home weren't affected by the pandemic, but we were. And I felt I was better prepared. When I reflect, and that's a mindfulness reflection, when I reflect on life, I realize that I don't control. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And when you get that at a very deep level, it's frightening at first, and then it's freeing. There's a wonderful teaching by a Zen Korean master, Sang San, don't know mind, keeping a don't know mind. It means lack of control is not necessarily a negative thing. 
I mean, if we had a choice, we would control what's happening in life. But what I mean by it not being negative, and that might not have been the best way to put it, is that if you're having a really rough day, impermanence can be your friend because tomorrow may be a lot better. So there is this sense that lack of control is a negative, but life is full of surprises and some of them are quite wonderful. And so it's a matter of learning to keep your heart open to a life that is uncertain, that is going to bring you surprises every single day. So in that sense, I was more prepared than a lot of people Mm -hmm. for the pandemic because I don't expect to control what's going to happen. Okay. So now for a little bit of Buddhist advice. Sure. How do we avoid identifying with our illness and our symptoms if we're trying to let go of self and its aggregates? Well, if you think about who you were when you were a teenager and who you are now, at least when I do this, there's very little similarity. I maybe can see a few things, but as a teenager, the things I wanted then, I have no interest in now. I had a drawer full of lipsticks thinking that if I just put on the right color, I'd be popular. It's a sad story. And a lot of teenagers have stories like that. I'm just raising that because when I think of who I was then, it bears very little resemblance to who I am now. What's happening in my body, when you open your heart to it, there's a fluidness to my symptoms and the same fluidness I feel to my identity. And I'm really quite content to have no identity. So sometimes I think, I'm an author. Oh my God. I, and that's okay. <laughs> I say, I can't believe I wrote all these books. But to be able to say, author is an identity and it comes with wants. I want people to buy my books. I want, you know, it comes with baggage, I guess you could say. And I find that I feel freer when I let go of all those identities. Including being a person who is chronically ill. Is that right? Yes. Yes. The chapter in How to Be Sick on No Self is called, Who is Sick? Who is in Pain? And I tell a story there that Kamala Masters told us on a retreat about her teacher, Munindraji. And they were in a railway station. He was very old and it was hot and there were benches and she was really worried about him. And she said, it's so hot. Are you okay? And he said, there is heat here, but I am not hot. And I found that tremendously helpful. There is sickness here, but I am not sick. I'm this ever-changing flow of this personality and then that personality. And what keeps me grounded we haven't raised this yet, but what keeps me grounded are the Brahma Viharas, mm-hmm. compassion and friendliness and feeling joy for others and equanimity, being able to accept that this life is always going to be a mix of joys and sorrows. I hope that answered your question. Oh, absolutely. And I loved that part of the book with Manindraji saying, there is hunger here, but I am not hungry. So just another question, what do you do with unsolicited advice? Because a lot of people who are chronically ill complain that people are saying, if you just eat kale, if you just do this, if you just do that. You would not believe the advice I've been (laughs) given. I have some favorites. I hope none of your listeners will be offended if I name what made them well. 
oil pulling where you you know swish some particular oil around in your mouth and spit I've never it heard out. Of that and, one. Yeah, and then I get some people telling me I must have done something in a past life. I mean, that's not useful to me. I had a friend who um, 25 years ago, she was in her 50s and she died of cancer. And she had this terrible problem with people bringing her crystals and all these kinds of things. I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, it's just, yeah. it is sort of funny. Yeah. It is interesting. And she was a therapist, but she had a therapist to help her through this difficult time. And her therapist said, just say thank you. And when they leave, put it under the bed. <laughs> and so that's the metaphor for what I suggest, because there is a tendency to sometimes want to get angry. But if you think about it, people, they're just trying to help. And so I've learned to just say, and a lot of my interacting with people, well, almost 100% is via email or that kind of thing. And I'll just say, thanks for mentioning that. Right. Sometimes they mention things I've been tested for, like Lyme disease. I've been tested every which way you can. But once a week, I get an email saying, I know what you have. You have Lyme. Right. So I'm just polite. And I feel better when I'm polite about it. There's another difficulty people face. Most chronic pain and illness is invisible. And so I'm sure I, I don't look sick to you. I don't look sick to other people. And this is another problem people have, not just people with my illness, but particularly people with chronic pain, you don't see it. And so people are always saying, oh, you look terrific and that kind of thing. And you feel like saying, well, I don't feel terrific, but I've learned they're just being nice. And so I say, thank you and move on. If they're interested in my illness, yeah, I'll talk about it. But otherwise, I just let it go. When people are in pain, I would never tell them to embrace it. And yet you say for yourself that you fully embrace your experience, no matter how painful it is. That's really hard. And it's really hard not to look at pain as the enemy, to kind of open to it. And I've, I've done it successfully sometimes and other times not. Yeah, it's really hard. And uh, sometimes, you know, these days people are going to pain clinics where they learn mindfulness practices that help with pain. And sometimes people write to me and say, well, so is mindfulness going to take away my pain? Well, it depends on the pain, <laughs> depends on the person. It's not a magic pill, but what mindfulness does is help you not make things worse with your pain. Because what happens is when you're in physical pain, there is, as you mentioned, this tendency to hate it. And I still have to work on this, but that's okay to say, I hate this. This is aversion that what I refer to the second noble truth I like to call want don't want mind which is what many of us including me spend a lot of the day in and so pain is one of those don't wants and so there's the physical pain and then there's this reaction to it and then the real emotional suffering comes when we start to spin stories I'll always be in pain like this. It's never going to change. No one's going to want to be with me. No one will ever understand. I'll never be happy again. You know those stories. And we spin those stories and then just believe them. Right. Because after all, so what I recommend people do with pain is to recognize that two of the three elements of pain that I just went over are mental, that aversive reaction, and then the storytelling we do, and just sit and breathe mindfully and feel compassion for that pain. 
sometimes that will help your physical pain. And the reason is that when you're in pain, there's a tendency to tighten the muscles around the pain. It's like until you're hurting in places that you need not be hurting that are coming from your mental reactions. I'm not a person who will say, if you send love to your pain, it will go away. That's never worked for me. But if I feel compassion for the pain, it makes it more bearable. And I'm not making it worse by predicting a future that we just talked about, a future that's unpredictable. Well, I have two more questions. And the first one is, what is it that we should not say to people who are in chronic pain or who have a chronic illness? What not to say? Well, first of all, if they're young, don't say you're too young to be in pain. And secondly, I would say that it's fine to tell somebody you look great, you look good, but follow it with, but how are you really feeling today? What are your pain levels? How sick do you feel? That's what you want to say. So what you don't want to say is, you look great. And just, you know. I almost said that. So (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, I've had people tell me that their partners have said to them, if you were really this sick, you'd be in the hospital. That's a cruel thing to say. When I say that people almost always have good intentions, once in a while, they're just being mean. But you know, if you think about it, if this is your caregiver, it could just be an expression of frustration they're feeling because their life has been turned upside down. My husband has been my caregiver for 20 years, and he's never said that to me about the hospital. But I just want to point out that sometimes I say to him, your life has been affected more by this than my life. Maybe, maybe not. But the fact is, when he goes out there in the world, he goes by himself. Right. And so all the things we used to do together, from traveling to going to restaurants, his life was turned upside down too. So when you talk about what you shouldn't say to people, try to keep in mind that sometimes if someone does say something that's wrong, it may reflect their own frustration and pain. Or perhaps their own fear because this is all of us, you know. Right. And I was going to say, or their own fear. I have lost a few of my friends which is not uncommon. One person wrote to me and put it so beautifully. He said, my friends have gone missing. And I used to be very resentful. And then I realized that these are two people who are uncomfortable around chronic illness. And I'm not sure why. It may raise fear that this could happen to them. It may remind them of their own mortality, but they're not able to be comfortable around me. And that's okay. I know they wish me well. Yeah. That must hurt though. It's difficult. Well, it did hurt. It doesn't hurt anymore. It's been 20 years. And Mm -hmm. so I've learned to stick with the people who take me as I am. I have a friend, this woman I was saying came over once a week and now we talk on the phone once a week. If I'm too sick, She says, okay, we'll do it another day. Whereas there are other people who can't handle that unpredictability. So if you have friends and relatives who take you as you are, treasure them. What about other people who are chronically ill? Have you formed a bit of a sangha or is there a network? Well, you know, there isn't for me. And one of the reasons is that I do quite a few interviews and a lot of people write to me. And of course, now I'm in the Zoom universe, which has been a good thing for me because my husband and I started a sitting group 
a Buddhist meditation group before I got sick. And now for the first time in 20 years, I get to go. Oh, that's great. Because uh, I can't go out in the evening, but right. I can sit and do this. So um, I forget what you asked me. <laughs> I think you answered it. But there is one okay. last question. You have so many excellent practices for summoning self-compassion when feeling hopeless or feeling hard on ourselves. To end, I was wondering if you could share one of those practices with us. Well, people write to me, as I've said, and the number one thing they say is that before I read your book, it had never occurred to me to be compassionate toward myself. I don't have trouble helping others, helping others with their suffering, but I never thought I was worthy of it. And so what I tell people is to imagine, well, I'm going to give an example. You went out to dinner and you stayed out too long with friends and now it's the next morning and you're in terrible pain and feeling really sick and there's a tendency to speak unkindly to yourself. You idiot. Why did you stay out that late? I mean, the, the words that we sometimes use about ourselves, we would never use toward others. And so I tell people, imagine that a friend called you and said, I'm such an idiot. I stayed out later than I should, and now I'm in pain today. You would say to that person, you're not an idiot. You were having fun it's hard to stop having fun when you're enjoying yourself. And so just be nice to yourself today. And I say, take those words that you'd say to a friend and say them to yourself. That is a practice that people have told me is tremendously helpful. Think of what you'd say to others when they're being mean to themselves. Think of the kind words you'd use and use them on yourself. You know, there's never a good reason not to be kind to yourself. That doesn't mean you can't learn from things and reflect on what you did and say, well, yeah, I stayed out too late. Next time, maybe when I get there, I'll say, you know, I only have an hour. So I'm not saying you shouldn't reflect on what you've done and how you might be able to do better, but then forget about it and be nice to yourself. You know, we've been talking about how we have no control in life. What can we control? We can control how we treat ourselves. So, Tony Bernhardt, thank you so much for speaking with us and taking the time. I know it requires a lot of energy and we're a real trooper, so thank you. I've really enjoyed it, James. Thank you for having me. And great to finally meet you. You've been in the magazine and for years I've known your work. And so it's great to get together like this. Thank you. Yeah, it's really nice. I love Tricycle. It's been a part of our life for a long time. Oh, thank you. And mine too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Tony Bernhard, author of How to Be Sick, here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest, Karen Jensen, and Julia Hirsch, with help from Amanda Lim Patton. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. <laughs>